Welcome, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to episode 34 of the It Matters to Me podcast, a show that celebrates the random through one-on-one conversations with people and the passions they pursue. Today, we are truly honoring that tagline with my guest, Jacob Lemansky. After quitting his job and selling all of his belongings, Jacob hopped on his bicycle in Boulder, Colorado, and didn't stop pedaling until he circled the globe twice. Now that journey took him 999 days and led him to some of the most remote parts of the globe. Upon returning home, Jacob felt inspired and had a strong desire to create something, but just didn't know what. And before he left on this odyssey, one of the few things he'd kept was an ant farm that he'd built out of scrap sheets of plastic and some lights that would shine through the ants' tunnels. And thus, Ant Space was born. And we first start out talking about that epic bike journey and how it helped him see the world in a totally different lens. Then we get into his return home and how hard of an adjustment that was after spending so much time away in so many different places. After that, we dive headfirst into his artwork with the ants to include an upcoming book and even an ant space lounge that is opening here in Denver, June 10th, 2022. Now trust me on this. Visit Jacob's website, antlife.space, and take a peek at some of the artwork that he's created. It'll truly inspire you to come check out the lounge he's opening if you're anywhere near Denver. It's unequivocally going to be unlike anything you've ever seen before. Okay, enough from me. Let's get to it. Here's my talk with Jacob Lemansky. Jacob, how are you doing today, man? I'm good. Excited to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, I am too. Um, you're actually like one of the first guests that I think I uh, originally wanted to speak with when I started this show um, because your work is so interesting and it's beautiful. And uh, I just there's just so many questions that I have around it. And I'm so glad that this is working out. But before we get into anything, one way I like to start the show is to give the listener a little bit more of a personal preview of the guest. And I do that with, uh, with a question that I can't seem to, to shake. And it's usually revolves around if I knew you growing up and let's say, you know, I had the opportunity to, uh, you're, you're about to open up a lounge, um, around some of your artwork in Denver. If I had the opportunity, let's say it's opening night, uh, and I, everyone's there and I get to, to give like this keynote speech about Jacob and the work that you're doing, but I can only do that by telling the most embarrassing stories of who you were growing up. What kinds of stories would I tell? Oh, I'm sure my sisters have plenty of embarrassing stories about me. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I've always just been kind of a, a unique character and um I know that my, my wildest stories usually involve me getting lost somewhere um, <laughs> and trying to find my way home. Um, and, you know, as a little kid, I was rambunctious. I played all the sports. Um, and I would also like, uh, I kept my nose in the books and, um, you know, it was pretty focused and, um, clear-sighted on the direction I was headed, I ended up getting an engineering degree 
Um, but eventually it just, uh, eventually I wanted more than just the path that was laid down in front of me. And, uh, I don't know, that's, that's kind of when my story turned from the typical to, uh, you know, the extraordinary in some ways, you're obviously reaching out to me for reasons. Um, want me to just tell you what's what the next step was yeah, yeah let's uh yeah so what you know what what makes um yeah just uh what is the extraordinary beginning of your story well it was, it was like at that point where i was um ready to veer off the path that was set in front of me and that a, a lot of just people take just as they go to school and then get a career and on and on and uh my divergence was to put my job and sell all my stuff and hop on my bicycle. And I circled the earth twice on my bicycle. It took me 999 days. I started in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I flew to Portugal, bicycled to China. Then I flew to Alaska, bicycled to the southern tip of Argentina, then across New Zealand, Australia, and Africa before making it back to Boulder three years later. Um, and why, why only 999 days? Cause part of me, uh, you know, I'm one of those, uh, I don't know if it's type A or type B personality where if I saw 999, I'd be like, man, I just got to get a thousand. I just got to go for one more bike ride. You know, it's, it would have been insane to bicycle one more day just to count <laughs> the number of days that I've been out there. <laughs> um, Honestly, nine ninety nine. That that number I counted afterwards. I wasn't keeping track in the moment. And uh, honestly, um, you know, I, I left the bicycle around the world was my goal. And then I did that, and I realized the goal was not to bike around the world, but it was to go as far as I could. And um, and and the the result of that is, I got to, I did get to that point. And I probably got to that point about 45 days before I was able to get myself home. So 999, like it should have been 950 if I, <laughs> um, but at 950, I was out in the middle of Africa and no one was coming to get me. So it took me that long to make my way back home. And I mean, like the stories that you must have um, from doing something like that, you know, it's, uh, because of, you know the pandemic, it's been it's been a couple of years since I've been on a plane, but I just I can't imagine not only the stories that you've ha that you have that you have from that trip, but just the people that you met along the way. Are there are there any moments that just stand out to you as just and I you know I don't, I don't feel like I'm grasping with this phrase when I ask it, but are there any moments that stand out to you as life changing on a trip like that? You know, the the stories are really about all the people that helped me along the way. Um, <clears throat> I'm writing the book and I'm I'm telling it day by day because if I were to compress it into um, a shorter story, it would just be about myself and my highs and lows. But the, the true story of the trip is all the people that helped me along the way. And it was every single day that somebody would stop me and ask if I needed help or a place to stay, or they're always curious where I was sleeping. Um, 
and they were always asked if I was scared. Um, and I would just explain there's, everyone's nice. And I said, you're here talking to me right now and you're nice. And that's everyone that I meet out here. And that was just true in every country around the whole world. Um, and that's, you know, that was just the theme of the trip. It was just a lot of kindness and a lot of people hearing my story and just being compelled to help me do something that was so difficult. That's, yeah, you know, and that's not surprising to me because I'm a firm believer that we're not the worst thing that's ever happened to the universe as far as being the human species, you mm-hmm. know, as it were. And I, I don't, I, I never, you know, I was in the military, but I never was able to do a deployment uh, overseas to the Middle East. But the people that I know that have done deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, one thing that stands out to me is how they talk about the people that they've met, especially in Afghanistan. They say that they are some of the kindest and most generous people um, to, to strangers. And for me, I've done something in Mongolia, which has a bit of a nomadic uh, ancestry to it or history to it. And so um, the, what I was doing over in Mongolia kind of involved uh, relying on the kindness of others and um, just the ability to you know, literally show up on some random stranger's doorstep and, you know, not expect them to give you help, but like ask for help and then they would give you help. And I, I were you able to actually, did you travel to any countries um, in, in the Middle East like that? Or did you travel to any countries that were the most surprising as far as hospitality goes? You know, I did cross Mongolia as well. And, um, I was about a month out there in the Gobi Desert, <laughs> and you know you were obviously there. It's, it's a harsh place to be, and um, it's a big country to bicycle across. And um, you know, kind of my method being out there, um, I didn't, I didn't ever want to ask for help. My goal was to, I, I want to be like a ship at sea. Once you leave the dock, there's there's no help. Everything you started with is all that you have. That was kind of my intention in that journey. Um, just, I don't know, kind of like the purity of that spoke to me. And so um, when the situations got desperate, I wouldn't go ask for help because um, I was trying to get through them just in my own desperate way. And whenever that happened, and it happened a few times in Mongolia, um, people would find me and they would offer me help. <laughs> and in that case, I would say yes. <laughs> and if I stuck to my guns and never asked for help, and also nobody offered help, I probably wouldn't have made it back. Um, but in fact, all, all the times that I was running out of water out there in the desert, someone would track me down. Maybe they'd be herding their camels along and see me and they'd pull over and they'd give me something to drink. And that was every day someone would do that. And why was it so important for you to, you know, you said there's a purity to it, but why, why is it, why was it so important for you to, to kind of be so self-sufficient or at least try to be um, self-sufficient on a trip like that? Yeah, the, it, it goes with the idea of trying to go as far as I can. Um, there's something about the idea of um, only getting to a place where I can go no further, where I know that I've gone as far as I could. 
And so, you know, I, I left to, I left to do that and I biked around the whole world and I'm like, <laughs> I have to keep it hard if I made it. So I was asking for help and I was catching car rides or, um, whatever had a chase vehicle. There's lots of ways people do it. Um, maybe I would have gone forever, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I was, I was, I was trying to give myself a, a challenge that was so difficult. I would be forced to quit. Um, I just didn't realize it would take me three years to, to get to that place. <laughs> um, but, all, you know, also, like, I didn't speak the language. I didn't know uh, the culture just to be walking up on people, asking for help. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a scary guy in any way. No one was ever intimidated by me. But um, I don't know. It just it just felt it, part of the way I kept myself safe was only talking to the people that wanted to talk to me. So if I was suddenly like showing up and imposing myself on someone that was uncomfortable around me, um, that could put me in danger somehow. So I was trying to only speak with the people that wanted to speak with me. And then, so I would let people approach me and that's kind of the way I went about it. Man, your ability to probably read people is, uh, is probably at like superhero level, um, especially being able to translate across cultures like that. Cause I can only imagine being, uh, you know, I hate, I hate to use the common trope of like an American tourist, like going somewhere and just like shouting at people in really like slow English, trying to get their point across. I imagine that, yeah, you probably have picked up quite a few, you know, uh, tips and tricks on how to, to handle almost any situation. Yeah. I mean, communication in general, um, you know, I only speak English and then I was in non-English speaking countries for years and, um, basically I learned to, I learned to read body language and the conversations. I, I, it took me a long time to get, to realize what was going on and then to get good at it but to speak with people in other languages when i don't have their language and they don't have mine is it's kind of all anticipation of what they are asking um what you expect them to ask uh and you know i i guess that's kind of most obviously that showed up people would just ask about my bike trip they would see me and they would ask where are you going where are you coming from um, how long have you been out here? Where do you sleep? Are you married? It was kind of like exactly that order. And that was pretty common across the world. So I got good at answering those specific questions in any language with gestures and, uh, <laughs> and that, and that worked. <laughs> and then if the, if the, and that's, that's my anticipated conversation. And if they strayed outside of that, I would get I would get really lost pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 um, it's interesting how probably around the world, most people look at a situation like that and they all just want to know the same thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and, and even, I, I even felt like, uh, just to be traveling on a bike like that, I'm very approachable. People can walk right up to me. Um, and, and, and also I'm, I'm out there in the world. I'm not like traveling on a bus or something, just scooting through small towns. I'm, I'm hitting every little town along the way. People that never get tourists coming through, see me. And, uh, yeah, they're all curious. 
(laughs) They all all wonder what I'm up to out there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would, uh, I can only imagine. Um, all right. So you spend 999 days on this bike. Uh, you travel the world, you you circumnavigate the world twice, correct? Um, and you come home and you come home to Boulder, Colorado. What is that experience like coming home? You know, it was, <clears throat> I recognized I I went and bicycled all over the world and came back to the richest, whitest town I'd ever been in. <laughs> and honestly, it's a beautiful place there. It really, truly is um, kind of, despite the diversity that's there, it is a really nice place. It's safe and it's beautiful. And even when I was traveling, um, and I would find people in their difficult situations, wherever they were in the world. Um, I would always think like, I wish you could come back to Boulder with me. It's great there. <laughs> it's really beautiful. <laughs> we have running water. There's lots of grocery stores. It's just, it's just wonderful. Um, so that, I mean, that was the experience. I, I can't complain about Boulder. Um, but I did recognize uh i don't know just that just that aspect of um it's really at the top of a hill <laughs> that town it is and i've actually uh and i totally get that and i've actually heard it um referred to not just as uh the you know this city on the hill but it's a snow globe uh, of sorts because um yeah, it's just, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, I lived in Boulder for a few years. I went, uh, when I got out of the military, I went to school at Boulder. That was, I, I had, I had never been to, uh, to Boulder, um, before I enrolled there. And when I was getting out of the military, I had like every military veteran, this idea of, okay, what can I do to be the least military in my civilian life now? Like, how can I shed this persona of military, uh, of whatever military persona I I thought I'd had? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to move to Boulder, Colorado, the most liberal place I can think of and smoke a bunch of weed. Um, And and, I mean, I moved to Boulder. I, you know, it turns out it wasn't really a big, uh, wasn't really a big fan of weed, but it was, um, but yeah, it is, it's just this beautiful place. And I can, I can imagine a more jarring experience after probably traveling the world like you did and coming back to a place that's a lot more heavily populated and metropolitan. I mean, even Denver itself would probably be really just, it would be really tough to handle. Um, so but yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying about the uh, uniqueness of what um, Boulder offers. Um, so you come back to Boulder. Uh, did you have any plans of what you what you were getting, what you were going to do when you came back? Or did you just come back and you were like, all right, let's see where this goes? Um, you know, part of being out there, uh, traveling, not, not to any destination, but just to until I want to quit is I, I didn't know where I would end or when I would end. Um, for, for a thousand days, it could have been tomorrow, you know? So it really taught me just to be entirely present right in the moment out there. Um, cause I had nothing to think about for tomorrow. I was just going to be biking and, and that was my whole life. I just, 
I just simplified it right down to that. So by the time I got home, um, no, I hadn't thought about anything <laughs> other than bike touring uh, for the previous three years. And, you know, it, it was a beautiful, positive experience, but it was, um, you know, coming back was challenging in a way. I was really far out there. I hadn't, um, I hadn't been around people for years. I hadn't been even in countries where I could speak the language for years. Um, I'd been sleeping, hiding in the forests for years. Um, you know, just kind of a good way to express how far out I had gotten. When I got home, I continued to sleep in my hammock in the backyard for eight more months. I slept outside <laughs> through a winter, even though I had a bedroom. And that's just who I was at that point in my life. <laughs> and I was, you know, in a way I was traumatized from being out there so much, but also I didn't like being inside. So I ended up, I found myself in the garage. I put the door, I would open the door <laughs> and I would be halfway in and halfway out. I would be there and I could feel the weather and I could be look outside and also had a roof over my head. And that was like the safe space that I, landed on coming back from the trip <clears throat> and you know from that place in the garage um i was inspired to create something my background's in engineering i'd been out there not making anything for years and i missed it i really missed it and so i came home and um really what what my attention settled on was this ant farm that i had built years ago and honestly while I, was, while I was traveling, I didn't miss anything or anyone. I just loved where I was at and what I was doing. And I'm sure my family missed me and my friends missed me. It didn't matter. I was by myself and I was happy out there. The one thing that didn't that, that I did miss uh, was my ant farm. I created this thing um, in my early 20s, uh, a few years before my trip. I had gotten some scrap plexiglass and I got it framed at Michael's and I put a little light bulb behind it and I created this this ant farm and I'd watch the ants dig and I missed it. And then I went traveling and it was at home and I had all these interactions with ants along the way. Um probably ants are all over the world, right? They're literally everywhere. And what what I would do I came up with this in Mexico. Um I would take my pot that I cook with and I would, every night I'd find an anthill and set it down next to the anthill. And uh, over while I was sleeping, they would clean the whole pot for me. <laughs> and then I would pick up the pot, kind of dust it off and stick it in my bag. And uh, I let the ants do my dishes for, for <laughs> the last two years of my bike trip. <laughs> so, um, and I, I mean, I've had a, even more experience with ants down in Central America. I would set up my hammock and, at night, they would walk down the hammock rope and all those little leaf cutter ants, you see them, you know, moving through the forest, long lines with little leaves. They would chop up my hammock and they would cut out the bug mesh and they would carry the bug mesh away. And then mosquitoes would get in and they would wake me up. And then I, I'd have to get up in the middle of the night and do some sewing on my bug mesh and chew off the ants. And that ha that happened multiple times. <laughs> um so I was having all these interactions with ants out there and then I get home and my attention fixates on my ant farm. And, uh, and 
I get it set up in the garage and I'm out there just in the pitch black one night watching it change colors, watching the ants dig. And, um, and actually my, my roommate at the time offered me a hit of LSD with an ant printed on it of all things, an antacid making a weird pun. <laughs> an <laughs> and, antacid. I <laughs> and, uh, I had never, I had never done LSD before that. So it was a new experience for me. And I just did it. I just did half of it. So it wasn't a big experience, but it was LSD with an ant on it. And that <laughs> night sitting, looking at my ant farm, I was inspired to create the most beautiful ant farm anyone's ever seen. They don't make them for adults. I looked, I was like, I can make one for adults. And the next day I just started I started designing, I started getting the tools, I started building, and I built the first one, and then I realized I needed a second one, and six months later, I built an installation of uh, of eight ant farms, the largest one being four feet by eight feet big, and I looked it up, it's the largest ant farm in the world, and uh I built this whole collection and, and hung it up in my basement, this whole uh, illuminated collection of ant farms. And I sat down there and I felt very crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, like I, I bicycled all around the world. I think of it as the hero's journey, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the end of the hero's journey, the hero comes back with an elixir. It goes on this wild adventure this great exploration and he returns home with some bit of knowledge or something to give back to the community. And I was wondering what that was going to be for me, right? How do I finish this journey? And I had built a collection of giant ant farms and I thought, is this it? This is what I came up with after all that, <laughs> after that big, huge, long journey Ant ant farms is my elixir. <laughs> and um, at that point I decided I should sell them because everyone told me they were beautiful. <laughs> they they and, are, man. It, it's, you know, you land on, and I've, I'm, I'm, I'll link, uh, all the, everything we talk about in the show notes for anyone who's listening. But if you go to antlife.space, you land on a page and I want, I want you to just try and describe what these pieces of art are you know you said that they're you, you gave a rough description but i kind of wanted you to go in a little bit more detail so that whoever's listening can get a little bit better picture but really if you just go to antlife.space and the, the page that you you know the landing page and you see some of the stuff and like i want this <laughs> like i want these things <laughs> they are so cool yeah they're really amazing um y'all just it's always a challenge to describe it and i've I've described it to people and then they go to the website and they say, that's not what I thought at all. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so we'll imagine uh, a picture frame that's three inches deep. Um, within the frame, I have embedded LED lights that change colors. Um, the background of the frame is uh, a nebula, a Hubble space image that's beautifully colored. Um, and then in the front of the frame is a habitat, two pieces of plexiglass, uh, spaced apart and soil and ants in there. And so as the illuminated frame shines light, it illuminates the background, which changes colors and then shines out through 
the tunnels of the ants. And so as the ants dig, they create the artwork. And in that way, the artwork is never the same because they're always working. Um, and you never know what it's going to be. And so in that case, you don't know what it's going to be. It's never the same. It only exists right in the present. And the art piece unfolds. I have ants in my living room right now. They are 14 months old. So the art unfolds over uh, a year. It becomes something. And then when all the ants die and they do, and there's a whole emotional uh, arc that happens when they, when you start with a hundred ants and they're busy and they're tunneling and slowly they die off. And then maybe the last two or three months, you turns into like a, a retirement home and the ants are just hanging out being sleepy. And then you're down to just one last ant. And after a year that ant dies and you care about it. And I, I joke, I, I get people to care about one single ant. <laughs> And if I can do that, what else are they learning to care about? <laughs> and so at that point, then you can clean it and start it all over. And it's it's a hobby, you know, and you can drop in seeds and see how the plants grow. And you can watch the roots go down and the leaves go up. And, you know, the maintenance, you can forget about it for a month and the ants will just continue digging in there. It's, it's really amazing how little attention they need. Um and I make them, I make them really big and I make them so you can hang it on the wall. And it's, um, it's an art piece you talk about. It's one that you look at over and over again. It's not just, uh, something on the wall just to break up the paint. It's really, um, it's entertainment. It's a hobby. And there's just, there's so many things that I appreciate about this work because first off, I love, um, Anything that kind of makes, I forget what the term is, but it's like biophilia or something now, where it's a trend where it's like incorporating more of the outside world in our inside, uh, you know, homes inside or in, in, where we spend most of our time. And, you know, it's, it can go from anywhere of putting vines on your walls so that they're growing over your walls or, you know, putting it's, it's more than just like keeping a potted plant on the desk, basically. And I love this because this is this this is takes that a step further and it brings a like, you know, plants are living, but you don't, you, you can't watch a plant really grow over time. I mean, nobody has the patience for that. I'm sorry, but then to sit here and watch a plant grow, but you can watch ants tunnel and you can watch them work and you can watch them move. And I can, I can just see it inspiring such curiosity and wonderment and just, and especially in the way that you've done it, where it's so, you know, beautiful. It's not just like a plexiglass. Like you said, you've got these LED lights, you've got the, uh, the nebula pictures in the background. It's just, there's so much fun to look at. And so I appreciate just like the, the connectedness that this gives you or the connection that this gives whoever's looking at it with nature. Um, and another part that I, that I really love, uh, what you talked about is how, you know, what you're watching is, is brand new art and it's never been seen before. And it reminds me of an installation that I had seen in uh, when I used to live in Washington, D.C. And uh, there was this chandelier that was built by LED lights. Um, you know, it's like, I can't even say it's like a thousand little icicles that all had like a little light behind them, but it was built by a software engineer 
and he programmed them in such a way that they would all blink in this random uh in this random fashion and the art was that literally what you were watching would never be repeated again because there was there was so much randomness to the sequence of lights lighting up that like no person, no matter how long you, you stood there would ever be able to witness the same configuration of lights. And so I, I, that when you, you know, talking about seeing something new every day that just leapt out at me as something um, that is, that's just like so cool about this work is that you can, you know, you're in that moment and you're watching these ants work and you're realizing like, it doesn't matter. Like the, this, this scene in front of me will never be the same scene ever again. And so I think that's just so cool, man. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't mean to take over this conversation. This conversation is about you. I don't mean to take it over, but I just can't help. But, uh, yeah, I'm obviously, I'm obviously already a fan of what's going on. So, um, okay. So yeah, you, you, you start, you, you, you create these pieces of, of artwork. Um, but you also mentioned that you wrote a book. When did, or you're writing a book, um, is the book finished? Yeah. You know, I, while I traveled, I kept a journal every single night. Um, I started off sending it to a, a girlfriend just to let her just to bring her along on the trip. And then we, we split up cause I was out there for so long and, um, <clears throat> started, I just started sending it to some friends. And so I, I have a, and, and I was alone out there. So every night, I would spend an hour writing just to help fill the time. Um, I have to think about bike touring. You bike maybe five or six hours a day, and then you have 18 hours to fill. And so I, I learned to play guitar out there and I became a writer. And so I have this journal that's 500,000 words. It's a huge, long journal. And I'm editing it into a day-by-day retelling of the whole story. And the idea with that is, you know, I explained this in this way, I'll be able to tell you about every person that helped me along the way. Um, but also, it, you know, I, the length of the story is part of what makes it so interesting. Um, I'm, I'm writing the books. I wrote the first book that covers from Portugal to China. I'm working on the second book, which will be North America. The third book will be South America and the fourth book will be New Zealand and Africa. Um, But really my, my goal with the whole thing is to get to a point where I can start a podcast and I'm going to read one day at a time for people and they're going to have to listen to it at the pace that it happened. And so they're going to have, if they want the whole story, they got to keep up with it for three years. And when we're biking across Russia together and it's just plains and farm fields for 65 days before I get to another hill, I want them to also be cheering when we get to that <laughs> hill together, you know? <laughs> and, and like, how long does it take to, to bike across a continent? People don't have any guess. They don't have a sense of it. And if you read it in a book in a couple chapters, you don't know either. But if you listen to it and for eight months, we're crossing North America together then you get a sense of it. And, you know, as I explained, I wanted to go as far as I could and get to a place where I quit. And I want the listener to be right there with me <laughs> after three years and be like, I'm done. <laughs> what a great damn idea. 
<laughs> I think that is so cool. Uh, and trust me, getting a podcast off the ground is much easier than you would think. Um, I am more than happy to, you know, give what little advice I can and help you along with that because that is such a cool, that is such a cool way to tell your story. Now, when you, um, and you don't have to, if it's going to be a surprise, obviously you can uh, plead the fifth on this, but if it's, are you going to, uh, is each episode, do you imagine it, you know, you'd be reading from the journal or, uh, but would you also be adding in your own kind of narration after the fact of like, um, you know, maybe trying to explain the scene a little bit more or would it, would it just be each day as you're just reading verbatim from your journal? Well, so the journal, the journal was the very first draft and I wrote that before I was any good at writing. Um, so in, in writing the books, like the work that I'm doing now is it's a lot of editing. It's a lot of telling the story better. It's a lot of bringing in my memories from the day that I didn't have the mo time to write down in the moment. Uh, just telling it better and, and also filling in those details about my emotions at the time and just anything else I can think of. So I'm, I'm writing the story very well to begin with so that when I read it, that's, that's a whole story. You don't actually need extra commentary because it's all captured. Um, so, I mean, it, there's a, there's a little fuzziness and that like, it's, uh, it's not exactly my journal as written, but it is mm -hmm. totally the story best told. Um, and then I want to soundscape it. So people can love little bike noises in there. And, <laughs> uh, if it's windy, they'll hear wind or, you know, like in, in China, um, China is beautiful. The people are really nice. But the drivers, um, you know, driving culture is different all over the world. And what they do in China is um, it's more like driving in a river. It's like you're with the flow as opposed to following rules. And so <laughs> say someone say you're, someone's coming up to the road from the right and they're making a right hand turn onto the road. There's no expectation that they'll look left for a car coming. They'll pull up to the road and they'll turn right and they'll just keep going. And so if any cars that's coming, they need to move into the left lane. Or if there's another car coming in the left lane, they move into the middle of the road and they just pass. And then no one hits their brakes. I don't know why, but they avoid their brakes at all costs. They just swerve around. And, you know, the speed limit in China is like 30 miles per hour. So no one's going real fast, but also no one's looking. And, and because no one's looking, everyone beeps their horns at each other. You don't have to look because you can hear. And everyone would beep their horn at me. And so if I'm on the road, say five hours, um, 300 minutes, maybe I get beeped at three or four times a minute. So, so now, now I'm getting beeped at a thousand, 1200 times. If it's busy, maybe 2000 times a day, right in my ear, right over my shoulder. And at the beginning I could handle it, but I was in China for almost two months and my, my nerves were just totally frayed and I just could not handle the beeping anymore. <laughs> and the listener, when I do my podcast, they're going to hear beeping and they're going to hear a lot of it. And by the time I'm ready to be done with China, they're also going to be, their nerves will also be shaken by all the beeping they hear. <laughs> so it's like, I'm going to bring people into it in all the ways that I can in an audio form. And then, and then also I'll, I'll have the photographs that I took the whole way. And I also have a, a map that should, Every night when I slept, I 
pushed a button on this device I had and it took my GPS location. And so you can zoom into just a Google Earth map and see literally just the trees that I slept between each and every night of my whole trip. And so you'll have the photos, you'll have the geodata, and then you'll have the story itself. And I think collectively, I can give people that experience enough that obviously it's nothing anyone else wants to do, but people are interested in it. <laughs> oh, man, trust me, I want to do this. This is that's such a cool way to tell your story. I keep repeating myself, but it is. And it, it's so similar to kind of what your, your artwork with the ants are. And it's that, you know, you're, you're taking, you're taking what could be a one dimensional approach to just telling your story of just like putting it out there and Hey, if you want it, you can read it. And where you're now you're incorporating the audio, you're incorporating the visuals, you're, you're just, you're bringing somebody into it. And just like with some of your aunt, or just with your aunt artwork, it is, it's got, you know, it's got the ability to draw you in. You're not just standing there, like looking at a, at a two dimensional painting. You're watching this 3d artwork, these 3d organic, you know, organisms work. And so, Oh man, that's so creative. And that's such a good idea. Um, Okay. Well, we're, you know, we've got, we've got a few minutes left, but the, um, but I believe you're also starting or you're opening, um, a lounge in Denver. Is that correct? Yeah. The lounge is, um, you know, when I, when I got back from my bike ride and I started, basically I became an artist and started making my work. Um, it was, I had biked for a thousand days and then I was home for a thousand days and I was just, taken stock of what I had done in this mirror time frame since I had returned. And I had just built um, this piece. I call it the celestial being. It's, it's a similar idea framed image with light shining on it. There's no ants in front. It's just the picture. And um, it's just a beautiful, it's my masterpiece. It's beautiful. And same thing, the lights are changing and you can sit and you can look at it for, hours. It's my meditation piece. And I built a chair to sit and look at this piece. And, uh, the chair itself was special as it was right on the floor. Cause it, when I was traveling, I, there's no chairs when you're out traveling. So I learned to sit on the ground and they don't make a, <coughs> chairs for adults for the floor. So I built myself a adult floor chair and I sat with this piece and I realized in the thousand days since I got back, I was trying to create a place so beautiful that I was compelled to stay. Um, and I did it through my art and through the sound, through the music that I've found and through this comfortable chair that I created. And the, the, the next, the, you know, I created that and that was four years ago. And since then I've been, kind of refining my artwork and refining the act of just sitting with it. And at this point, um, I've created a whole, a whole way of being with this art. It's, it's like, it needs to be observed. It needs to be sat with it. Um, it needs to be experienced. And so, um, I just recently found a place in downtown Denver, down on market street near the baseball stadium. Um, it's a big 6,000 square foot warehouse 
I'm going to fill it with my art and with sofas and chairs. And I'm going to invite people to sit and just observe the ants, <laughs> you know, observe the art, like learn to be with it, be present, be still, be meditative. Um, and also it's a big space. We're going to have dancing in there. Um, all my, you know, the, all my stuff is illuminated in color changing light. So it creates a whole trippy experience to be in front of it. Um, and it's going to be non-alcoholic and it's going to be open late. You know, I'm, I'm in my late thirties. I don't like to get drunk and go out late. I like to, but I do like to dance and I like to be somewhere beautiful where I can talk to people. So I'm, uh, kind of just creating an alternative to the bar scene, creating an alternative to really anything else that's out there. I, I needed, you know, just like I wanted an ant farm for adults and one didn't exist. I want a nightclub for adults and then one doesn't exist. So I'm creating it. And, um, I think it'll be really beautiful. And I think people will just totally enjoy being with my art and being with the experience of that space. What a pioneer. Um, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I, 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 the only, I, I don't, drink much anymore i went through a period of not even drinking at all for four years i'm like i mentioned before i'm about to turn 36 next month and so for me yeah alcohol just really isn't my thing anymore um and i and and, and i and i definitely am on board with the idea of just in a space for adults where it's not centered around alcohol where it's just centered around being being present um being mindful being in engaging conversations hopefully and then in, in probably looking at some fantastic artwork um is it do you know when that space is going to be open yeah i'm shooting for uh early june probably june 10th um i honestly i got a i think i'm getting the lease uh tomorrow or early next week so once i get that signed it's uh pedal to the metal getting art built and i'm getting i'm buying a bunch of nice hi-fi speakers you know another thing that I really want is really nice music, but not loud music. I want people to be able to have conversations with each other. So I'm, I'm getting a bunch of real nice speaker towers. I'm going to fill the room with those so that I can keep the volume low <laughs> instead of just a stack of speakers at the front of the room. I'm going to have them all around. So people are sitting close to them and then you don't have to have the volume very high. You don't have to go home with your ears ringing. I mean, the- <laughs> <laughs> These are the problems I'm trying to solve. <laughs> but anyway, that's a serious problem. It's uh yeah, I don't know. It's a sign of old age probably when I um yeah, if I if I make it out to a show, I feel like three or four days later my hearing returns. But um yeah, I love that's such a that's such a good idea. You could you definitely count me in um for a space like that. Um well Jacob, you know, we've this is just, this is on, on a, you know, this has been one of the most amazing conversations for me um, because just the story that you're telling resonates so deeply with me on a personal level because there's, there's just something about being out in nature like that. And just uh, hearing you talk about the, you know, kind of some of your adventure and just like briefly, you know, uh, teasing like, you know, being uh, in the Gobi desert or being, you know, writing in, in Russia or, you know, I've never been to China, but just, just moments like that 
are just so, so beautiful. And it's a shame that we don't get to have, uh, that not a lot of people are able to have them, but it's, 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 I'm so thankful that you did and that you've come on the show to talk about them. Um, and I'm, I will absolutely push as many people to, uh, your work and to your site. And if they're in Denver, we're going to go out to your lounge and we're just going to be all about this ant life because it's such cool work. So, um, Jacob, I just want to say thank you again for coming on the show. And I really hope that we get to talk again soon. For sure. Thank you so much. That's a wrap for this episode of the It Matters to Me podcast with my guest, Jacob Lemansky, creator of Antspace. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to his blog and artwork, as well as anything else that came up during our conversation. Also, if you have a minute and you enjoyed this episode and the podcast overall so far, please consider leaving a review and sharing it with a friend. It really helps other people discover the show. And if there's someone you think I should have on the show, please let me know by writing an email to adam at itmatterstomepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. And until the next one, this is Adam Casey, signing off.